Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of child sexual abuse, violence, and Satanism. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Susan Polk sat on her living room floor and whispered to her 18-month-old son, Adam. If anyone had glanced through the window of the spectacular Berkeley home, they'd assume it was just playtime. But that couldn't have been further from the truth. Over and over, Susan begged little Adam to tell her about the mysterious bad people. Who were they and what had they done to him? She meticulously interpreted each of his goos and gaws, and she was horrified by what she heard. Like many other parents across the U.S. in the 1980s, Susan was convinced her Adam was being abused by devil worshippers. The idea terrified her until it totally consumed her thoughts. It seemed evil was rampant, preying on the innocent and the vulnerable. And now, it was at her doorstep. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. This is the second episode of our four-part series on Felix and Susan Polk. Over the next three weeks, we'll dive deep into a heinous crime, decades in the making. You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last time, we met Susan and Felix Polk. At 15 years old, Susan came to Felix for professional help in dealing with some complex emotions. But he saw her as more than a patient, after years of towing the line, they struck up a secret romance. This time, Felix risks his reputation to hold on to Susan, but their fresh start is overshadowed by the satanic panic ripping through the nation. It grabs hold of both Susan and Felix, tearing them apart. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. By the time Susan turned 18 in 1975, she'd been in psychotherapy with 46-year-old Felix Polk for three years. Felix had barely ever hidden his romantic feelings for the much younger girl. When she was finally legal, he took things to the next level. As he did, he insisted that Susan keep their love a secret. The more people who knew, the higher the chances his wife Sharon would find out. Not that he was concerned about hurting her, but if she knew, she'd probably leave him. With their reputation as Berkeley's golden couple on the line, rumors were bound to swirl. Susan didn't seem to understand just how precarious the situation was, though. During one of Felix's group therapy sessions, she got into it with another patient. We don't know what the fight was about, but Susan jumped on the offensive. Stubborn since childhood, she'd never been one to back down from an argument. That instinct must have been even stronger with Felix watching. Susan knew she wasn't the only patient he was unusually close with. Even so, only she had such a special connection with him. So, she played her trump card. She told the entire group that she and Felix were lovers. The room exploded with shouts of outrage. Some participants were angry that Felix would do such a thing, while others were deeply jealous. 
everyone seemed to feel his actions were a massive betrayal of trust. One by one, his patients stormed out of the building, vowing never to return. It was the first hit Felix's career had ever taken, and it terrified him. It might have also been the moment he realized how much damage Susan could do. But even that wasn't enough to convince him to walk away. So he just re-emphasized the importance of keeping their relationship private. In the end, it seemed his fears were largely unfounded. Over the following weeks and months, many of his patients returned like the faithful followers they were. The reality was, they worshipped Felix like a god. Despite the hurt he'd caused, they were too emotionally dependent on him to walk away for good. Although he managed to keep a grasp on the rest of his flock, he couldn't seem to wrangle Susan. As she transitioned from girl to young woman, his control over her started to slip. By then, she'd spent so much time at the university where Felix taught graduate courses that she reconsidered the idea of going to college herself. Despite dropping out of high school, Susan genuinely loved learning. Besides, college looked kind of fun. But she knew she needed Felix's approval. To her delight, he seemed supportive of the idea and even recommended Mills College in Oakland. As far as Felix was concerned, it was the ideal choice. Not only was it close to Berkeley, it had the added benefit of being an all-girls institution. So she wasn't likely to meet another man there. With that in mind, he pushed, or rather, helped her apply. Admissions requirements were different back in 1977. The fact that Susan never finished high school didn't seem to be a problem. With only an interview and her impressive SAT scores, Susan got accepted with a partial scholarship from the state. Though her mom, Helen Bowling, had a successful real estate career by then, there's evidence that Felix might have covered the remainder of Susan's tuition. Still, it's possible Susan was strapped for cash. That might be why she continued to live at home. With everything sorted, Susan began her first semester, and it turned out College was much more her speed than high school. She could choose her own classes and focus on topics that actually interested her, like literature, philosophy, and psychology. Like a flower feeling the first warmth of spring, Susan blossomed into a vibrant free spirit. Even her fashion sense changed, becoming a lot trendier. She definitely didn't dress like a mini Felix anymore. She was so excited by the changes that pretty soon, spending time with Felix felt like going backward. He expected her to be her old self when all Susan wanted was to move forward. Over time, their relationship started to feel like an unwelcome frost, dampening her newfound independence. Obviously, she couldn't talk to Felix about her feelings without upsetting him. So she turned to someone closer to her age, a young woman named Kathy Lucia. Kathy was one of the patients who knew about Susan and Felix's relationship. Unlike the others, she thought their love affair was the most romantic story she'd ever heard. But the more she listened to Susan, the less perfect it all seemed. At one point, Susan seemed to recognize that her initial attraction to Felix stemmed from unresolved issues with her own father. 
The more she studied psychology, the more conflicted she felt about dating her therapist. Yet even after airing out these concerns, Susan was slow to take action. At the end of the day, Felix was one of the most important people in her life. She'd counted on him for so long, it terrified her to think about giving him up. It's likely that Felix did whatever he could to make her stay, though we don't have the exact details. Still, it wasn't enough. Two years into her college career, Susan ended things. At the time, Felix told a friend that he was the one who wanted a break. He insisted he only let Susan think it was her idea. But considering how intense his feelings were, the friend didn't buy his side of the story. If Felix's pride was wounded enough to lie, it's possible he retaliated against Susan in other ways too. Mills was an expensive university, one that might have been out of her price range without his support. And well, being dumped doesn't usually make people feel generous, which could be why Susan took a break from school around this time. College had given her a sense of independence and direction. Without it, those feelings disappeared. Her life was back up in the air and she didn't have Felix to guide her through the uncertainty. Helen probably tried to help her daughter regain her confidence, but their relationship had been strained ever since she started dating Felix. Helen hoped this would be the moment she'd been waiting for, when Susan finally broke free of his spell. To her dismay, however, after just six months apart, the pair reunited. And this time, Felix was ready to go all in, even if it meant leaving his wife. It was a big step and something he'd been avoiding for three years now. The truth was, though, he'd been unhappy for a lot longer. And Sharon clearly wasn't as oblivious as he hoped. We don't know exactly when or how she found out, but she'd suspected he was having an affair. It's possible she even knew the other woman was Susan, in any case, Felix officially separated from his wife in October 1978, just one month after their 20th wedding anniversary. It wasn't the immediate solution he thought it would be. Toward the end of November, Sharon burst into the break room of Felix's office building in a blind rage. The other therapists sat stunned as the red-faced woman screamed at them for turning a blind eye while her husband slept with his patient. Eventually, Sharon's friend hurried her out. The only real consequence was that the building got a lot more awkward, but Felix could see the writing on the wall. Aside from the patients in the derailed therapy meeting, no one had confronted him about his relationship with Susan. Even so, Felix worried that the farther the story spread, the more vulnerable he'd be. And yet, he wouldn't give up Susan he couldn't, not after spending half a year apart. Despite the drama with his wife, the two were ecstatic to be back together. Felix's friends from this period described Susan as puppy-like, trailing after Felix and hanging on his every word. At this point, 22-year-old Susan had been out of school for a year, and she missed it bad. She decided to go back, this time to the much more affordable San Francisco State. We don't know who footed the bill, 
but Helen helped her find an apartment near campus so she wouldn't have to commute across the bay. Felix came to visit as often as he could. Susan was the happiest she'd ever been. It felt freeing to be back in classes, and she quickly realized how much she loved living on her own. There was so much space and quiet, and she had plenty of time for her favorite things. Reading, writing, and thinking. One thing she thought about a lot was her relationship with Felix. Whenever she was away from him, the world just seemed so much bigger. She was constantly meeting fascinating new people around campus, and it only made her hungrier for more. The couple had just gotten back together, but Susan couldn't help but wonder if she'd made the right decision. When she broached the topic with Felix, he brought out the metaphorical big guns. He led with anger and guilt, reminding Susan how much he'd given up to be with her. He'd left his family for her. Then, to her utter surprise, the 47-year-old dissolved into a puddle of tears. Clinging onto her, he said he didn't know what he'd do if she left him again. Without her, he didn't have a reason to live. He recalled his past trauma fleeing the Holocaust and deep abandonment issues, both of which had led him to attempt to die by suicide. The barrage of intense emotions and vague threats had the intended effect. With the sense that his life was in her hands, Susan shoved aside her doubts. In the end, he convinced her that she owed it to him to stay. The door was shut, and one thing was painfully clear. She couldn't leave him. Not ever. Coming up, a devilish surprise derails Susan and Felix's happily ever after. Now, back to the story. In 1979, 22-year-old Susan Bowling finally felt ready to break up with 47-year-old Felix Polk. But the talk backfired. Instead of ending things, the two decided to move in together. While looking for a place, the couple stayed with Felix's closest friend, Stephen Piddle, a forensic therapist who'd known Felix since grad school. The way he saw things on a certain level, their relationship made a lot of sense, mainly because Susan allowed Felix to have all the control, which was great for his ego. Still, that didn't mean Stephen was on board. He might have tried to avoid diagnosing his best friend's girlfriend, Yet, he couldn't help but notice that she was… off. At times, Susan didn't seem entirely present. It was like she was living in a dream world that barely overlapped with reality. Even more concerning, Felix either didn't see this or he didn't care. In fact, he seemed happy to exist in Susan's world whenever they were together. Stephen worried his friend would follow her down any rabbit hole she chose, and one day, it might lead to disaster. As if to prove Stephen's point, the couple spent most of their time locked away in their room. When she wasn't in class, Susan came home to help Felix with a book he was working on. It was supposed to be his magnum opus, outlining how others could achieve the success he had with his adolescent patients. When Stephen got a peek at the pages, 
he was blown away, and not in a good way. The whole thing was a convoluted mess, almost entirely made up of other people's ideas. He knew Felix had always loved a trend, but flipping through the manuscript, there was more to it than that. Felix didn't have a single original thought. And it seemed the publishers agreed. They refused to make the book, putting an end to Felix's writing career before it even began. Even so, Felix found plenty of professional success. Despite his relationship with Susan, he continued to be a favorite among his graduate students and had a steady roster of loyal clients. He didn't notice, however, that there were fewer referrals coming his way. Alarm bells rang in the back of his mind. Word was spreading. How could it not be? At this point, he'd been in drawn-out divorce negotiations with Sharon for nearly three years. Their entire social circle had no doubt heard the sordid tale, perhaps from Sharon herself. Thankfully, they finally came to an agreement in 1981, just as Susan was sent to graduate from SF State. According to Susan, before things were finalized, Sharon demanded to meet her in person. The two women gathered in Felix's office. He practically hid behind his desk as Sharon leveled her steely gaze at Susan. She only had one thing to say to the other woman. She warned Susan that she had no idea what she was getting into. We don't know how the rest of the conversation went, but in the end, Sharon Polk seemed satisfied. On her way out the door, she told Susan she could have Felix. If Susan was rattled by the warning, she didn't show it, and neither did Felix. He proposed to Susan shortly after the divorce went through. The news was met with mixed reactions. The majority of Felix's friends and family were supportive, though it's hard to imagine his kids were happy for him. And they probably weren't the only ones feeling that way. The last thing Helen Bowling wanted was for Susan to marry Felix, but she'd given up trying to get through to her daughter a while ago. The doctor himself also seemed to have some misgivings. Felix went to see a therapist around this time. Although he claimed he cured Susan long ago, he described his bride-to-be as a disturbed former patient. He worried about how young and potentially unstable she was. So, if Felix knew Susan still had these issues, why would he go through with it? Well, for one thing, he'd been fixated on her from the moment they met. He probably felt pressure to lock things down after almost losing her twice. And ultimately, the marriage was also an attempt at damage control. Felix might have hoped that an official ceremony would make up for their scandalous beginnings. There was only one way to find out. On December 26, 1981, 49-year-old Felix and 24-year-old Susan were set to marry in the chapel at Mills College. As she got ready in the bridal suite, Susan felt doubts resurfacing. She thought about running, but the feeling was fleeting. She couldn't do that to Felix, especially with the memory of his suicide threat playing in her mind. So she bottled up her feelings and headed down the aisle. But making it through the wedding wasn't the half of it. 
married life turned out to be more complicated than Susan anticipated. Despite making nearly $100,000 a year from his private practice alone, Felix wasn't great with money. He'd managed to sink himself and now Susan into a lot of debt. The newlyweds didn't have the cash for a down payment anywhere, let alone Berkeley. Luckily, Helen stepped up and lent them $60,000. While she didn't exactly support the union, she still wanted to take care of her daughter. The couple used the funds to buy a brown shingled house in a stylish neighborhood just south of the UC campus. Felix took one room as his study, which quickly became his in-home office. The new setup had lots of benefits. Going into his office building had been awkward for a while. As an added bonus, he could spend as much time as he wanted with Susan, which was pretty much every minute. If he wasn't in a session, he hovered over her like a helicopter. It helped that she was always around, especially once she graduated magna cum laude. Susan didn't mind the homebody lifestyle, but she needed something to while away the hours. She started with typical wifely duties like redecorating the house and teaching herself to cook. Even so, she felt antsy. Susan saw Felix's passion for his patients. She wanted that for herself. And she'd noticed something else about her husband's work. Although he might have been great with people, he was terrible at running a business. She found uncashed checks in his garbage more than once, so Susan decided to try her hand at managing his finances. They quickly realized she had quite the mind for numbers. To say Felix was grateful would have been an understatement. Before long, he couldn't remember how he'd done any of it without her. Susan had always loved feeling special to Felix, and she was also excited by her newfound skill. As her interest in business grew, Helen suggested she join her in the real estate world. Helen had been doing very well for herself for a number of years. She loved the idea of passing on her hard-won knowledge to her daughter. Susan was willing to give it a shot, and the pair soon bought a property together. Susan fixed it up, and they resold it for a profit. Then, they did it again. They kept a few of these properties to rent out, and before long, they had a fairly lucrative side hustle going. No doubt, Felix approved of these ventures because Susan could do them from home, under his watchful eye. Managing her investments and Felix's practice certainly kept Susan busy, but ultimately, she still felt like something was missing. That all changed in January 1983, when she gave birth to their first son, Adam. Suddenly, her purpose became crystal clear. Even Felix was surprised by the way she threw herself into motherhood. Like any new mom, Susan grew attached to her son. She barely set him down for the first months of his life, even wearing him in a carrier while she tended to the garden. He quickly became the center of her world, a place once held by her husband. And it didn't take long for Felix to get tired of being left out in the cold. One day, he floated the idea of childcare. Susan hated the thought of being away from her boy for even a second, but she did need to get back to her real estate dealings, which Felix pointed out would be easier without lugging the baby around. 
Not long afterward, she came across an ad in a local newsletter. Another set of parents was looking for families to split the cost of a nanny. They'd already chosen one who came with stellar references. Everything checked out, so Susan contacted them and hired the babysitter. She had to admit the setup was convenient. Even so, she did everything she could to limit the time she spent away from her son. More for her sake than his. Every minute without Adam cranked her anxiety up to levels she hadn't felt since high school. And the TV news only made her feel worse. The 1980s were the decade of stranger danger. It seemed like there was a story about a hurt or missing child in every broadcast. Now that Susan had Adam, the stories were that much more terrifying. Her worst fears played out in the summer of 1983, as a waking nightmare was broadcast on televisions across the nation. Parents in Southern California accused the workers at McMartin Preschool of sexually abusing their young students. And apparently, there was more to the tale, a lot more. Network after network picked it up, each adding the latest gruesome and bizarre details. Before long, the narrative included everything from an underground pornography ring to satanic rituals. Thanks to the rise of fundamental evangelical Christianity, fears about the devil worshippers were already on the rise. The moral majority had been gaining steam for the last few years, and any mention of Satanism was a ratings goldmine. Before long, the panic spread beyond the McMartin School. More and more parents started to wonder if their children had been affected. They tried asking their kids, but of course, there wasn't a protocol for that type of thing at the time. The combination of leading questions and eager-to-please youngsters resulted in an endless series of accusations. At its height, there were upwards of thousands of alleged victims spread across the state. The constant coverage was practically unavoidable, along with information about supposed warning signs. Around this time, one-year-old Adam started having nightmares and trouble sleeping. Felix claimed to see him bite the family dog. That's when Susan started to worry. Unexplained violent behavior and sleep issues were at the top of the list for symptoms of childhood sexual abuse. So, Susan put two and two together, and then went a lot further from there. She decided that their shared nanny must be part of a cult. Like the kids at McMartin, Adam had been ritually abused. She conducted her own investigation, beginning with her son, a child who couldn't even speak yet. She'd ask him question after question, listening intently for clues among the baby babble. Between her paranoia and little Adam's broken speech, she concocted a nightmarish tale, one that would set the tone for the rest of the decade. Coming up, Felix gives the performance of a lifetime. Now, back to the story. The satanic panic was in full swing by 1984, and 27-year-old Susan Polk had fully bought in. Her husband, 52-year-old Felix, looked on in concern as she quizzed their son, Adam, about the bad people. 
little did he know, this was just the beginning. During her interviews with Adam, Susan zeroed in on any noises that vaguely resembled a name. Then she got out the phone book and flipped through until she found something that sounded similar. Address in hand, she'd actually go hunt these random people down. She'd drive to their houses and follow them, watching for signs of suspicious activity. Sometimes, she'd even take Adam with her and have him point out where the supposed bad things happened. One house the 18-month-old gestured to happened to belong to a famous wildlife photographer. In Susan's mind, Adam had just identified the leader of the pornography ring that was abusing him. When she finally brought her findings to Felix, he wasn't sure how to react. Part of him worried for Susan's mental state, but the other part found her story strangely compelling. Felix knew enough not to directly challenge Susan's beliefs. That typically drives a person deeper into their delusions, especially when it involves an emotionally charged topic like the safety of their child. But beyond that, he was at a loss. So he went to see one of his old professors at UC Berkeley for advice. There are several methods for dealing with a person experiencing a delusion. We don't know what the professor recommended to Felix. However, we do know he didn't follow her guidance. Unless, of course, she suggested he go along with it. Because he did. Rather than try to help Susan out of her paranoid headspace, Felix joined in. Soon, he was also questioning Adam and coming to the same conclusions. Something terrible had happened to their son. He and Susan pulled the information they'd gathered to string together a horrific and complex narrative. In the months since they'd hired the babysitter, the boy had spent less than a hundred hours with her. But Susan and Felix were convinced that every time they dropped him off, Adam and a number of other children were immediately shuttled to a warehouse somewhere in the bay. They were kept in cages until cult members brought them out one by one to be ritually assaulted. Sometimes, one or more of the children would be brutally sacrificed, either by burning or drowning. All of this supposedly took place in front of an audience and cameras. Despite the stress of the situation, the Polk family grew during this period. In June of 1985, Susan had another boy named Eli. Nearly two years after that, they welcomed their third son, Gabriel. Even with the new additions though, Susan and Felix remained fixated on their oldest. By then, most of four-year-old Adam's life had been dedicated to his parents' investigation, and they showed no signs of slowing down. It seemed like each time they interviewed him, he revealed fresh new details about his ordeal. Susan and Felix's tale echoed those coming from other parents involved in the growing anti-Satanist movement. However, it's not clear whether Felix was a true believer. Some suggested he had another motive for feeding into the hysteria. It's possible he saw how much press the therapists working with the McMartin families were getting, and his gears started turning. He'd specialized in adolescence for decades, but they were at the forefront of an emerging field, child psychology. It was an untapped market, waiting for leaders, and Felix wanted in. His first move was to write a report outlining Adam's alleged abuse, titled 
Reflections on Psychology. In the paper, Felix put forward his findings about the satanic cults responsible for these horrid acts. He went so far as to claim that some of those groups were funded by the CIA. Allegations like these provided a convenient cover when believers were asked for evidence. The truth was, beyond the statements elicited from children as young as two years old, there was none. Daycare after daycare was examined, and not one shred of physical evidence ever turned up. According to Felix and others like him, the lack of proof was the proof. The cults were obviously well-organized and made up of powerful people, the kind who could make evidence or even entire cases disappear. The parents leading the charge insisted this was why they had to fight so hard to get anyone to listen. So when Felix's report didn't garner much attention, he and Susan took matters into their own hands. They started a nonprofit organization called Enough to bring more awareness to their cause. What began as a small group of parents and friends quickly garnered a massive following. They held rallies and vigils, drawing bigger crowds each time. On November 8, 1987, they organized a press conference at the Mark Hopkins Hotel in San Francisco. 400 people showed up. Felix gave a passionate speech about how institutions were failing children like his son. At one point, he called the events an American Holocaust, which was really saying something, considering he'd fled the real one. The next day, his speech and the Enough organization made the front pages of local papers. And their momentum only compounded from there. In December, they held a candlelight vigil on the steps of the California State Capitol. The crowd numbered in the hundreds. All of the parents and children in attendance left letters at the governor's door. From there, Felix became a minor celebrity in Northern California. His mental health credentials lent legitimacy to his group, which went a long way toward getting the right kind of attention. He and Susan co-wrote a manifesto detailing Enough's mission and goals. While plenty of grassroots groups had done the same, theirs reportedly found its way onto the desk of the United States Attorney General. Although Felix established himself as the face of their efforts, Susan also did plenty to advance their cause. She turned her focus on the media, calling and writing to every reporter she could find. At one point, she secured an interview with the Washington Post. The journalist she spoke to had been working on a story about the fallout from the McMartin trial. By then, she'd heard every version of the standard accusations, or so she thought. During their interview, Susan upped the ante. She claimed that Adam had been flown to a secret location where a famous wildlife photographer took explicit pictures of him. The reporter was floored. The other parents had seemed like generally logical people who were just caught up in the moment, but Susan was on another level. Ultimately, the story ran without her comments. Still, that didn't stop her. For the first time in her life, Susan felt free to say what she really believed, and the people at her events actually listened. Being a part of Enough had restored her lost independence. Felix's friends noticed the change. Susan had gone from subservient housewife to outspoken activist. Meanwhile, 
Felix was too busy with his own ambitions to be threatened. He used the campaign's success to springboard into the lecture circuit. In 1988, he spoke at the California Consortium of Child Abuse Councils Conference. Strangely, he asked the organizers not to introduce him as a therapist. Instead, he simply wanted to be identified as the father of a ritualistically abused child. Yet, he went ahead and told the audience about his qualifications as soon as he got on stage. Because they were in Berkeley, he made sure to mention that he'd once been the chief psychologist for all of Alameda County. He then went on to describe Adam's alleged abuse in detail. He told them about the time Adam saw a baby hammered to death and how the boy was dressed up as a girl and sodomized in front of a crowd. This, he claimed, caused Adam to develop dissociative identity disorder. It was clear that the audience hadn't expected such an in-depth show, but Felix went on and on as they shifted in their seats. Eventually, he assured them his goal wasn't simply to shock. What he and his organization were trying to do was generate enough public outcry to force legislative change. He insisted that his only motivation was to make it impossible for bad people to hurt any more children. However, his words felt oddly calculated. Before long, people started to suspect he wasn't being entirely truthful. Friends, fellow therapists, and even his patients began to question Felix's grip on reality. Most of them were sure he'd been sucked into Susan's delusion, a phenomenon called folie adieu, also known as a shared psychosis. It's essentially when two people come to believe in the same delusion. It's not a disorder on its own, but can be part of others, including schizophrenia. The more skeptical among his social circle, including people like Stephen Piddle, figured Felix was just trying to make a name for himself. They didn't think he actually believed any of it, which made talking to him even more awkward. It's not a surprise that most of these relationships fizzled out. And it wasn't just those in the mental health field who were concerned. Early in 1988, Felix's 26-year-old daughter Jennifer wrote him a letter. In it, she confronted his antics, she disputed their claims of abuse, and all but accused Felix of attention-seeking. Felix's response was devastating and certainly not becoming of a father, let alone an experienced psychologist. He said he wanted to, quote, shove her words back down her throat and called her an uneducated pseudo-feminist. He wrote that maybe she felt jealous of Adam. In his rage, he sunk to the level of insulting her appearance. He wrote to her again soon after, though it wasn't the apology she deserved. Instead, it was a massive guilt trip. Felix essentially blamed his daughter for his response, claiming she'd triggered his sensitivity to abandonment. Needless to say, their relationship pretty much ended there. Even so, it probably wasn't Jennifer he felt abandoned by. As the 80s drew to a close, so did the nation's obsession with satanic child abuse. Felix could likely sense that his golden goose was about to fly the coop. The thought of being the figurehead of a dying movement must have terrified him. Everyone else was ready to move on, but it wouldn't be so easy for him or for Susan. 
she could also feel her power and purpose slipping away, but her paranoia couldn't be destroyed. And once Susan lost her outlet, the countdown to self-destruction began. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next time with part three of our four-part series. Thanks to Felix's trend chasing, Susan learns about repressed memories. When she unlocks a new version of their story, the results are catastrophic. For more information on Susan and Felix Polk, we found Seduced by Madness, the true story of the Susan Polk murder case by Carol Pogash, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum, edited by Natalie Pertsovsky and Terrell Wells, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Joshua Kern. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Mm-hmm.